Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. Glad to have you here. We are a Bible-based church out of Ontario, Canada, and together we're on a mission to reach people far from Christ and help them become devoted followers of Jesus. Today we are firing up a brand new series, Focus on the Book of 2 Peter. And in this series, we are walking verse by verse through the New Testament letter of, obviously, 2 Peter. And in Peter's farewell address, he encourages us to pursue spiritual maturity, to discern false teachers, and to live in light of the second coming of Christ. As we open his letter, we are challenged with this question, are we growing in grace? With that, let's turn over to Pastor Nate with part one growing in grace. Well, it's been a great morning already. Uh, great to see so many of you here today and great to be able to share in communion together in this way. Uh, today we're actually kicking off a brand new uh, study. We're going to be uh, walking through the New Testament letter called Second Peter. Now, if you're, if you're new around Pathway or new-ish, uh, what you may not know is that most of the year and most of the time throughout the years that we've existed as a church, uh, we typically would teach in a topical way. In other words, we have a message series. We just, uh, we just finished one on the power of lies. And so we're focusing on the theme of lies and we're looking at the, what the Bible has to say about the subject. Or maybe we'll do a series on relationship and connection or we'll do a series on forgiveness or reconciliation. And so we're walking through the Bible and saying, what does the Bible teach about a particular subject? finding its application and applying it to our lives. That's great. Uh, one of the things we do like to do on occasion, though, and we often do this during the winter months, is to actually do what we call an exegetical study. And so rather than choosing a topic and focusing on it, we're actually going to take a portion of text that's found in the Bible. We're going to walk through it verse by verse. It's fun for me as a preacher. I get to be a little nerdy, pull out Greek words, and try to explain history, context. And so for some of you, your personality is just like, this is amazing. Get your notebook out, bring your Bible and your highlighters. And it's amazing for others. You're like, I just, I just want something fun with an application. Um, we'll try and do some of that as well. Uh, if you were around about, I don't know, maybe four years ago, we actually walked through Peter's first letter, First Peter, which is heavily focused on suffering and difficulty, external pressure that the early church was facing. Peter writes to encourage them that, that God's got this and that they should be patient and steadfast through suffering. And that was right before COVID. So I think God was just getting us ready um, for a rough time. Uh, but this letter, Second Peter, he's actually writing towards the end of his life. He's actually, he knows, as we're going to see today, that he's going to die soon. And he actually writes this letter to encourage the church against some of the pressures they would face inside the church. And one of the greatest pressures we're going to see as we look at our text today within the church is something called apathy. I'm a Christian, got my ticket to heaven. I'm just going to put my feet up and enjoy the ride. And Peter's going to say, no, 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 no. Uh, he's going to talk a little later in, um, there's only three chapters, but in the second chapter, he's going to talk about false teachers and false teaching that comes into the church. And how, what do we do with that? How do we stay on the path? And then lastly, he's going to talk about how to live in light of Jesus's soon uh, coming return. So uh, that's where we're going to be. If you have a Bible with you, I want you to grab it, open it up to Second Peter. Second Peter's found at the very back of the Bible. If you hit First, Second, and Third John or Revelation, you've gone too far. Back up a few pages. Uh, I do want to encourage you to bring your Bible, if you have one, uh, to church. If you don't, we'd love to give you one. Uh, but if you can bring your Bible to church and a pen or a pencil, something, uh, I really believe that it's important for us to, um, to mark up our Bibles. Now, some of you are like, no, you can't. 
for me, as I study the Bible, I've got a, I've got a Bible, I don't know if you can see that, but it has really big margins. Ten years ago, this was amazing because it has really small writing and big margins so I could pick notes as I study the Bible. Now that my eyesight is starting to go, it's, uh, it's, it's a little problematic. But here's the thing, I don't want to get rid of this Bible. I've been using this Bible for about 10 or 11 years. It's being held together like most of our church by Gorilla Tape. See, the whole back uh, is holding it together. And I want to get a new one that has bigger font size. Uh, but I would lose all of these precious notes. You know, as I've studied the Bible and read it for myself, when I see something and it jumps off the page, I'll just highlight it or underline it or make a note in the margin. It's just something that's significant or meaningful or something that I want to make sure that I, I notice when I read it again. And so I really want to encourage you to find some system uh, for making notes and highlighting the things that God is showing you as you're reading His Word so that next time you read it, you see it again. So I want to encourage you to do that. I also want to encourage you over these next oh, let's say six or seven weeks is going to take us to walk through this letter, I want to encourage you to be reading Second Peter. Like, just read it through the week. It's three chapters. It'll take you six or seven minutes to read it. But what happens is the more times you read it, the more things will jump out at you. And you'll get more out of this series. As I point to things, you'll be like, oh, I noticed that, and it connects to that. Uh, we were watching a movie as a family uh, recently, and it's a movie I'd seen many times, one of my favorites. I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's cheesy and it's romantic. But anyways, I was watching this movie with the kids. And one of the things I noticed as I'm watching it is it's like the more times you watch something, the more it jumps out at you. It's like, oh, I didn't notice that person in the background doing that. Oh, I didn't notice that comment is so cheeky. I love it. Like you just, you miss stuff. So I should watch movies with subtitles on. You don't miss anything. Just saying. Anyways. And so, uh, so the more times you read something, the more times you watch them, the more you get out of it. So if you're reading Second Peter throughout the week, you're going to get more out of the series, I assure you. And I want to encourage you again to, to make notes and track along with us. So if you've got your Bible, let's open up to Second Peter. And we're going to begin in verse 1. And we're just going to look at the first two words. And so the first two words literally uh, tells us who writes the book. It says, Simeon, Peter. Now, I think it's interesting to note that in our modern context, when we write somebody a letter, we write the person we're writing to. We put, Dear John, Dear Mary. And then you have to read five pages of nonsense to get to the end to find out who it's from. Sincerely, Nathan. But in, in the ancient times, they actually wrote who was writing the letter right at the front. So before you read it all, you know who it's coming from. And, and so he introduces himself. And this is interesting. He actually introduces himself with two names, Simeon Peter or Simon Peter. And this is interesting because uh, Simon has his given name, his Hebrew name, Simon or Simeon, that his parents would have given him as a Jewish boy. And then he also claims the name Peter. And this is a name, by the way, uh, most of us grew up in Sunday school talking about Peter, right? It's like Peter walked on water. Peter denied Christ three times. You know, Peter kept putting his foot in his mouth and saying things he shouldn't, right? Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached the first sermon in the church. But his actual name, his given name at birth was Simon. Jesus actually gives him the name Peter in Matthew 16. And you can read about it in Matthew 16. Uh, P, uh, Jesus asks his disciples, he says to them, who do people say that I am? And Peter steps up, and always, as he always does, and he starts talking. And Peter says, well, they say, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're Jeremiah the prophet. Some say um, you're John the Baptist reincarnate. Like we, this is, and Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Simon says, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You did not figure this out on your own. This is not your wit. My heavenly father has revealed this to you, who I am. And then he goes on to say, 
your name will be Peter, which is in the Greek language, is uh, the word Petros, and it means pebble or small stone. He's like, your name is going to be stone, pebble. And on this rock, and he uses a different Greek word, Petra, also the name of a cool Christian rock band from the 80s, okay? And on this Petra, on this boulder, on this foundation stone, I'm going to build my church. And so, you know, with... Um, without offending any of my Catholic brothers and sisters, this is not saying that Peter is going to, the church is going to be built on Peter. It actually says that Peter's faith in Christ would be the stone that's built upon the foundation stone. And this would be the kingdom of God. And the gates of hell would not prevail against this kingdom. And that's why in First Peter, Peter actually talks about how each of us, like living stones, are being built up upon Christ, the cornerstone, to build a holy temple unto God. So Peter understood the analogy, okay? So he's given a name, Peter, which means little rock. Not Arkansas, just little rock, stone. And he's given the name Peter. So as he introduces this letter, we know exactly who's talking. It's Simon Peter, um, the one who, was, uh, who followed Jesus and uh, who walked with the disciples. He continues to Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I love how he uses two names and he gives two titles. And he starts with servant and he ends with apostle. I don't know about you, but if, if I was an apostle, I'd probably start with that one. But hey, what do you do for a living? I'm just an apostle. No big deal. You should do what I say. I walked with Jesus. Uh, he doesn't do that. He says, actually, he calls himself a servant and an apostle. Jesus said, the greatest among you will be servant of all. And he was greatest will become the least. And Peter and John and James and all the other disciples really took that to heart. I'm a servant of Christ and an apostle. Who is he writing to? We find out as we continue in the verse. It says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. I want to stop there. There's a lot in this. He literally says, I'm writing to those of you Christians. And so if there are any Christians in the room, I believe there are lots. But if you have a faith in Jesus and you believe he's the son of God and you're trusting him with your life today and in the future, if that's you, he's like, I'm writing to all of those who have a faith of equal standing with ours. Can I tell you something? You, if you believe in Christ, have the same faith, a faith of equal standing with Peter and Paul and James and all the apostles. Isn't that cool? Same faith. The same valuable faith. And how do we acquire this faith? How do we become sons and daughters of God? He says, um, equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's not one person in this room who's a child of God because of something you did. It's because of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, this title he uses, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. People say, well, does Jesus or does the New Testament ever say that Jesus is God? Right there. There's actually many texts, but this is one of them that actually says that Jesus isn't just the Son of God. He isn't just a Messiah, but he's actually God clothed in flesh who came to be with us. And Peter, who had walked with Jesus, been there at his death, and saw his resurrected body, tells us here that he is our God and our Savior. I think that's so powerful. So we're through verse 1. Let's look at verse 2. It says this, Now may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Uh, grace is a theme here in this letter. Um, Peter actually starts the letter with grace, and he's going to end it. We'll see that in a number of weeks. He's going to end it with grace. So starts with grace, ends with grace. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, when he says that grace and peace be multiplied to us, it means that we don't have all the grace and peace that we could have, right? Who here has enough grace or peace? 
Nobody's putting up their hands. Did you know that there's more grace available for you than you even know? That God has more peace. And he doesn't want to just add it to your life. He wants to multiply it to your life. And he says, I want grace and peace to be upon your life. So how do we receive his grace? How do we receive his peace? He tells us as he continues, he says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. The knowledge. Everybody say knowledge. Okay. So this is where we got to nerd out for just a sec. Because that word knowledge in this first chapter, we're going to see the word knowledge. I think it pops up five times. And it's not always the same word in the original language, which should signify that there's some differences and some nuance. So let me just share with you what these two words are. We'll throw them up on the screen. The first word that is often used in the New Testament is the Greek word gnosis. And it means knowledge. It means understanding. So you go to school to get gnosis. Right? You read a book. You read a textbook to get gnosis, to get more knowledge, more understanding. Okay? But then he's actually going to use another word, and that's the one he uses here in the text. And it's the word epinosis. And it's the same. It's knowledge, but it's like a deep knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. There's, there's something. It's like, it's like you, you don't just know something about somebody, but you actually know the person that you're talking about. Does that make sense? So, for example, the, the illustration I, I thought of was uh, when I was in grade 9, I remember having to take history. It was mandatory. I didn't, I didn't want to take history. I wasn't interested in history. When I got into the history class, the theme was World War I, and I thought, oh, this is going to be boring. But it wasn't because the teacher that I had was so passionate about World War I. He would take his summers and go to Europe and visit the museums and go to the places. And, and he just he was so knowledgeable that he described for us how they did battle, how they stood in the trenches in the water for months on end and, and, and all the things that they experienced. And I mean, it wasn't just me. Our whole class was just mesmerized by this information about World War I. He knew a lot. He had a lot of gnosis about the war. And I learned a lot from him. But you know, if I could have interviewed a veteran who had served at Passchendaele, that person has epinosis. Say, hey, tell me about what it was like to battle in the trenches for years on end. And a little tear would just come down their eye because they know the feeling of standing in water for four months. They know the feeling of being shot at. They know the feeling, the smells, the sights, the things they experience. It's a deep it's not just facts about experience. And the reason why I think this is so important is because I want you to understand something. It is possible to show up to church and to have facts about God. Jesus died for my sins. Through faith in him, I can go to heaven. You can quote Romans Road. You can have Bible verses. You can understand all the facts about salvation and the gospel and Jesus and not truly know him. You can have gnosis. Facts and information and not epinosis, a deep understanding. And you can open up the Bible and it says, you know, it talks about sin. And you go, oh yeah, sin is something that's bad. It's something I shouldn't do. Jesus died for my sins. You have all these facts. But if you have epinosis, if you really understand, that is our sin that nailed our Savior to the cross. And that God's judgment for our sin came upon Him as he stood in my place and in yours, all of a sudden a little tear comes down your eye and you go, I think differently about sin because it's not just something I know about. It's I feel it. Do you understand what I'm saying? So there's gnosis. There's knowing about it. And then there's epinosis, this deep knowledge. People talk about love. Love is this and love is that. And then you experience love and it's, it's, it's something different to experience. Is that, is that making sense to you? Okay. So he says this. Uh, that's why um, Paul writes this in Ephesians 3. 
He says he prays for the church and he says that the, he asks that the church may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses gnosis. Knowledge, facts. He's like, I don't want you just to know stuff about God. I want you to experience his love and to know Christ in a way that is beyond head knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Can I tell you something? What Peter is writing to the church and to you and I to tell us is this, is that knowing him, I mean, not just knowing about him, but knowing him is what unlocks his grace and peace. It's what unlocks his joy. It's what unlocks all of his blessings. He continues in verse uh, three. He says this, his divine power has granted to us what things? All things that pertain to life and godliness through knowledge of him. There it is again, through epinosis. It's like, man, God has provided everything we need and it's accessed through knowledge of God and who he is. And he has called us to his own glory and excellence in the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Then he says in verse four, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. He says, God has given us everything we need. He's granted us all these incredible promises and we access all of it through the epinosis, the knowledge of him. Through the, there was, uh, I was looking online last night. There was actually, I was looking up, I was trying to find out how many promises there are in the Bible because we have all these great promises and we know this. And so I'm searching and the same number kept coming up. And I wondered, where's this number coming from? So I did a little bit of digging. Apparently there was a Canadian school teacher who decided to read the entire Bible cover to cover and count every single promise that God made to his people. It took him a year and a half. Do you want to know how many promises he counted? He counted 8,810 promises. And you can verify it yourself if you want. I'm not going to try. He counted 8,810 promises of God to his people. And God has made us these precious promises and he has the divine power to back them up. Let me give you an illustration. I, I was watching a message by Skip Heitzig, a pastor down in California. And he used this analogy, and I thought it was so helpful. I want to share it with you. I have here in my hand a check. Some of you, over 20, will know what this is. All right. It's a piece of paper, and you write an amount, and you give it to the other person, and they can go to the bank and get the money. And so it's a, it's a it, it really, this is a promise, is what it is. And I, and I filled out this check this morning, and I wrote uh, Kevin Reed's name on it. He's, he's back behind the camera today. He's not surprised because in the first service, I already gave him a bunch of money. So this will do this again. So I put his name on the check and I, and I wrote the numbers one. And I got six zeros. That's a million dollars. First check I've ever written for a million dollars. And I wrote it to Kevin. And I think he'd be really excited to receive this promise of a million dollars from me. Now, there's one problem. When he goes to the bank, he's going to find out that this check is not real. Uh, but the other problem he's going to find out is they're going to look in my account and say, Kevin, uh, Nathan does not have the power to make this promise. And I don't. <laughs> but God has the power to keep every single one of his promises. And we're holding, as if we're sons and daughters of God, we have an inheritance. We're holding his promise. We, we have it. But many of us haven't cashed it in. By the way, this is a total aside. Someone has been sending people in our church emails with an email address, nathan.pathwaylife at gmail.com and asking people to send me gift cards. It's a scam, by the way. So <laughs> I see a few people like, yeah, we've got those, okay? 
So please, I don't have a million dollars, but I do not need gift cards. If you receive something like that, it's a scam. Uh, delete the email. Anyway, we're working on it. God has made us great and precious promises. And we must do something with it. He continues uh, in verse uh, 4 and 5. He says, So that through them, through his precious promises, through his power, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So we've been talking about this in the, in the past couple of weeks in the series, uh, talking about our sarks. That's the Greek word for flesh. And it's, uh, we have desires in our bodies that are against the spirit and uh, against all that God wants for our lives. And what Peter's saying, he's like, hey, it's, you become a child of God. You trust in Jesus. Uh, there's actually a growth process that's supposed to take place. You are not just supposed to wait till heaven to become more like Jesus. You're actually supposed to become more like Jesus now. That his divine nature is supposed to be implanted and growing inside you now helping you to escape from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. Uh, we are born into God's family. I was born into the Blay family. Bleh family, however you want to say it. Um, that's how they pronounce it in Quebec, okay? Uh, but I was born into that family. I did nothing to become a Blay. A Bleh. I did nothing. My, my mom did all the work, okay? My parents brought me into this world. They, they raised me. They fed me. They clothed me. They helped me. Uh, they did it all. So I didn't do nothing to inherit that. In the same way, the scriptures teach that you and I have done nothing to become sons and daughters of God. It's all him. It's all his grace. It's all his righteousness. He does it. But, and this is the part that we often forget about as Christians, there's still something required of us. As a play, I had to, as a little kid, my mom's like, pick up those socks. I had to learn that. I'm still learning that. <laughs> I'm still working on it. Right? I had to learn to be nice to my brothers and sisters. I had to learn to act like a good blay. And I, I didn't even know this as a little kid, but I just walked around our house assuming. It was like, that's mine. That's my couch. This is my, I brought my friends come over. I'm like, welcome to my house, right? Because I'm a blay and this is a blay house, so it's mine. Like it was just, I just, I got this inheritance, right? I just understood. Like, someday maybe I'll get a few bucks or something. I don't know, for being a blay. But again, I did none of that. But then there's something required of me. And the same is true. You did nothing to become a son or daughter of God. It was all him. But once you accept Christ and begin walking with him, there's something expected of you. You're to begin to be shaped and molded into the character and nature of Christ to become more like him. <clears throat> we are to love one another. We are to pursue the things that God has called us to. And that's exactly what Peter is saying. Is like You have this same faith as me and the apostles, but... There is something required of you. And that's why he says in verse 5, let me read it before we throw it on the screen. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with, and he's going to give us a list of things in just a sec, but he's like, I want you to supplement your faith. Now, do you know what you need supplements for? When do you use supplements? When you're lacking something in your diet, right? Like, I don't eat fish. I don't like the taste of fish. I don't like the texture of fish. But I know that fish are healthy. So instead, I take cod liver oil pills. That's what I take. And so I'm getting everything I need without the nasty taste of fish until I burp. And then it's, yeah, it's, it's bad. I don't like it. But we supplement. We supplement, right? So we, if there's something we don't have, we supplement it. We add it in. We add it in. And so what Peter's going to say is like, hey, you've got, you've got all God's promises. You've got the divine nature. All that stuff's happening. But you're, you're, you haven't arrived yet. You're not like Jesus yet. So here's what I want you to do. As you continue to grow in grace, grow in your faith, I want you to supplement I want you to, be able to add these things to your life as a son or daughter of God. And here's the list. He says, for this reason, 
Make every effort to supplement your faith with. The first thing he says is virtue. Virtue. And this could be likened to character. Uh, Praiseworthiness, one translation says. Praiseworthiness. It's like when people see you coming, do they go, wow, here comes so-and-so. Or are they like, oh, here comes so-and-so. That's virtue. Do you get the the first one? Everyone's like, wow, it's so-and-so. That's virtue, character. The second thing he actually says is knowledge. And this is gnosis. This is the other, the other knowledge, gnosis. In other words, learn some stuff. Get smart. I don't know why it is that Christians are like, we don't need to get smart. We just need to have faith. No, you should read a book. You should take a class. Get smarter. It's not going to hurt you, I promise. So we should, we should supplement our faith with knowledge. We should supplement it with, he goes on, third thing, self-control. Self-control, the ability to say no to my own desires, the ability to say no to not allow my thoughts and passions to rule my life. Self-control. This fourth one, if you're in small group, uh, one of the questions for the small group discussion is, which of these in this list do you need to supplement the most? This is mine. Steadfastness. It's translated patience. I'm not very patient. Last night I was watching a Hallmark movie. It It was ultra cheesy. But I watch it anyway. And I'm watching this Hallmark movie and my wife's sitting beside me doing something else. And she noticed that like every time between scenes, they would have this like beautiful music and they would have these panning shots, you know, of beautiful scenery and cityscapes. <laughs> That's what they always do. And every time there was like one of these moments, I'm like hitting fast forward. I'm skipping all that to get to the action, right? To get to the, to the conversation. And she's like, you really are impatient. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, you can't even enjoy the music and the scenery. <laughs> On to the next thing. I'm working on it. Next, he says godliness. Uh, Godliness is choosing to do what is right, even when it's hard. To obey God rather than man. He says supplement your faith with that. And then he he says brotherly affection. This is the the Greek word Philadelphia. Right? The city of brotherly, brotherly love. That's what he's talking about. Brotherly love. Like, so you can't say, oh, I'm a child of God and I'm growing in faith and I love Jesus and I know him and treat everyone like garbage. It's like, no, no, no. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Brotherly love must be supplemented. And then he lastly finishes with agape love. This is the love that God has. He says here, he says, if you're really growing in grace, if you're really growing in faith, if you're really a child of God, then add these things as you grow in the divine nature. Verse 8, he continues, says, for if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Peter He's like, you can know stuff about Jesus and not be a fruitful Christian. Do you believe that? You think you can know stuff? You can have a bunch of Bible verses memorized and have it not change your life? Of course. Do you think it's possible to know how to to eat healthy, but still eat all the wrong food and gain weight? (laughs) Nervous. Everyone's like, ah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's possible to actually know how to save and invest and to do all the right things and become, uh, you know, a millionaire to actually be able to write one of these checks. You You can know how to do that, but actually not do it. And Peter's saying the same thing. He's like, look, he's like, if you will do these things, and if these things continue to increase, you will not be unfruitful. It will produce a result in your life. So what we know about God and what we know about the scriptures, it has to be applied. We have to do something with it. He continues in verse nine, whoever lacks these qualities. So if these things aren't present in your life, that person is so nearsighted, he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. It's possible to get to the place where like, well, I'm just, I just know God and I'm a Christian and none of the fruit of the Spirit's present in your life. Nothing's changed, transformed. He's like, you're blind. You don't even see 
that nothing has changed in you. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. In other words, he's saying one of the ways you can know you're a Christian is that you could, there's evidence of God doing something in your life. That doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean that every area of your life is sorted out, but there should be some evidence that you're a child of God. And the evidence is in these qualities, these characteristics, the fruit of the Spirit. You know, a lot of people, they, they think that if I say a prayer, I punch my ticket to heaven, and then I just carry on with the rest of my life, and one day I'm going to walk through the pearly gates and everything's great, and it's like, that's very short-sighted because the kingdom of God is actually something that gets planted in our heart and begins to change us now. It's not something that like changes us later. It changes us now and continues to change us as God's kingdom and his spirit and everything begins to grow the character and nature of Christ in us. Does that make sense? So I'm, I'm not a... See, when I think about it for myself, when I was four and a half years old, I remember saying a prayer with my mom at bedtime, asking Jesus into my heart. Did Jesus come into my heart? Yes, he did. I remember being 19 years old at Bible college and recommitting my life, saying, God, I'm going to live for you. Did something change? Sure. But I don't, today, many years later, I don't look back and go, I'm a Christian because of this or this. I'm a Christian because I prayed this morning. I know I'm a Christian because I prayed this morning. I know I'm a Christian because I still believe and trust in him. I know I'm a Christian because I I want to open up his word. I know I'm a Christian because I want to pray and I want to do better and I want to please him. Those are signs that something has authentically taken place inside. So I want you to think about that, and I want you to understand, as, as, as Peter writes to us, it says, man, if these things are present in your life, it is a sign that God is at work in you. I want to remind you, he says in verse 12. Oh, no, I did this in the first service. I missed verse 11. This is a cool verse. This is a fun one. Verse 11, for in this way, so if you see that that. this transforming power at work in your life and things changing. He says, in this way, he says, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior. Now, if you read this passage really quick, you might think what he's saying is, if God is at work in your life and these things are happening, then you will get into heaven. That's not actually what he's talking about. And it it was interesting. I was reading a number of different scholars and their thoughts on this. And they're actually not talking about entrance into heaven like you get into heaven. They're actually talking about how you enter into heaven. Richly provided an entrance. And there's an allusion here to what Paul also wrote about. Uh, when the Roman generals would return after taking some country, uh, winning some victory, they would come through the cities of Rome and there would be this huge celebration. All the people would be dancing in the street and there would be parties and all this kind of stuff, banquets and feasts. It was like, yes, you know, general so-and-so has arrived victorious and the whole city would be partying. He's actually talking about how when those who are faithful to Christ arrive in heaven, there's going to be a celebration. The angels of heaven will rejoice. Man, imagine when you get to heaven and they're throwing a party in your honor. It's like, this person who's faithful to Jesus has shown up and there's song and dance and food. But it's also possible that some of us might arrive in heaven and everyone will stop and go, you got in? It's not going to be the same for everyone. The actual scripture actually teaches that some will, will receive crowns. Some will receive rewards. Rewards of different levels. And it's not rewards like, oh, you were good enough to get into it. No, it's not that. We are saved by grace. But, but, but then when we're faithful to Christ, there are rewards for faithfulness. That's why, like uh, Paul says, I run the race to win, to be faithful. Talking about running to receive a crown. 
that would be honored on the other side of this thing. I don't know about you. I don't want to just squeak into heaven. I don't want to just get in. I want a, a rich entrance into the eternal kingdom. I want to hear Jesus say the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's your reward. Verse 12, therefore, he says, I intend. I'll just read these last three verses and we'll wrap it up. But he says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth. It's like nothing I'm telling you is new. Is anybody? Well, I'm not going to ask if you've heard anything new today, but generally speaking, what I'm telling you is not new information. (laughs) Right? That being a son or daughter of God requires something of you and that there's something that we need to grow in. We, We get this, but he says, I'm reminding you of these qualities because you know them and are established in the truth that you have. He says, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that putting off of my body will be soon. As our Lord Jesus made clear, Peter's like, Jesus already told me I'm about to die. And I want to remind you of the stuff you already know. Most of us don't need new information. We don't need new gnosis. We need to live out what we already know. We need epinosis. We need to experience what God has said and done for us. Verse 15, so he says, I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you will be able at any time to recall these things. So he says, I'm writing you this last letter before I go to be with the Lord to remind you so that you'll continue to do these things. You know, uh, Jesus in his uh, Sermon on the Mount talks about the person who built his house on a, on a rock. And who is the person that built his house on a rock? Not he who hears my words. He who hears my words and does them, right? We have to put it into practice. And that's exactly what Peter is reminding the church and reminding us. The question is, am I growing in grace? Are you growing in grace? Are these things being supplemented in your life? Are you growing in the character and nature of Jesus? I guess here's where I wanted to end. Um, (laughs) I want to remind you of a few things. Number one. None of us is a son or a daughter of God because of anything we do. It's all grace. It's all him. But once we're born into his family, something's required of us. We must grow in grace. We must become more like our Savior. We must become patient and loving and show brotherly affection and all of these wonderful things. And we must make every effort. There's work for us to do on this end. And I, and I think we'll be willing to do the work required when we truly... Know him. Not about him, but know him. Epinosis. Deep. Experiential knowledge of who Jesus is. You know, I'll finish with this. Uh, Many of you will know the story of the prodigal son. For those that don't, the prodigal son is a story about a father which represents God and his two sons. The one son is rebellious and wants to do his own thing. And he says, Dad, give me my inheritance now. You know, I'm not going to wait till you're dead. Give me what I'm owed. Give me my piece of the family pie. And and the father... (laughs) For some reason in the story, he says, okay, it gives him a bunch of money. So this young guy runs off to a foreign land, spends it on wine and women. He's taken advantage of. He ends up in a pit with pigs, starving, lonely. And in that state, he realizes how desperate he is. And he comes to himself and he says, um, it would be better for me to be a servant in my father's house than to live the way I'm living. And so he actually turns. He has a repentant heart and he heads to his father and he's preparing a speech in his own mind. He's like, I'm going to tell my dad, I'm sorry. I'm going to tell him I messed up and I'm going to ask him if I can work for him because it would be better than where I am. And as he's approaching his father's property, 
His father sees him from a long ways off. He's watching for him. And some of you know the story. The father runs out to meet him. Takes off his coat. Puts it on his son. Puts shoes on his feet. Puts a ring on his finger. All of these things symbolizing that he's welcoming him back into the family. And then he throws a big party. They, they kill the fatted calf and they call the servants and they're like, you know, come and eat and celebrate. My son who was lost is found. I'll tell you something. That son probably knew his father was gracious, had some gnosis about it, but in that moment he experienced epinosis. His heart must have broken and melted at the grace that he received from his father. And what's crazy is there's an older brother in the story. Half of us, statistically, would be the older brother, 50-50. The older brother is the one who was faithful, didn't do anything wrong, worked for his dad hard, all that stuff. And and he won't even come into the party. And the father goes out to meet him, and he's like, son, come in, your, your brother's home. And, and he's like, I've been faithful to you. I stayed here and worked hard for you. And you never killed a fatted calf. You never threw a party for me and my friends. That's a pity party. <laughs> and... Uh, And the father says something really powerful. He's like, son, everything I have is yours. (laughs) He had the father's grace and resources available to him the whole time and didn't realize it. And then he's mad because God was giving grace. His father was giving grace to his younger brother. I wonder sometimes how many, how many times we're, we're going, God, I need this. I need that. And he's already written the check. And we just don't even realize that we have everything that we need. And we don't realize it until we experience his grace in that way. So my hope and my prayer today as we close is that you would experience not just knowledge of Jesus, but experience knowing him in a way that is deep, that will ultimately transform your heart and life. And we know that's happened because your life begins to transform. Because there's nothing else that can happen after meeting him. Can I pray for you? Father, thank you for every person listening to me today. And Lord, as we open up this letter, Second Peter, and we think about all these words, I, I thank you that you have given us everything we need for life, for godliness. Thank you that you have provided for us richly your grace, your peace, your mercy, your joy. Help us, Lord, as your sons and daughters to both receive the gifts that you've given us, to receive your grace, but to know you, to know you in a way we've never known you before so that we can Be transformed and share your love with the world around us. God, I pray if there's anyone here today who has never committed their life to you, who's never surrendered to the good Father who extends his grace to us, I pray they would do it today. Thank you for this message series. Help us to grow as we read it and study your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, that's it from us. Thank you so much for tuning in. For any more information you need, feel free to reach out to us on any of our socials at Pathway Church PTBO. That's it. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time.